0: Hey there, DoozyPod listeners, I've got a new obsession for you, Body to Burial. Body to Burial is a new podcast highlighting the various professionals that work a body's trail from the crime scene to the final resting ground, from 911 dispatchers and crime scene cleaners to coroners and criminal profilers. Through casual conversations, Body to Burial explores the intricacies of these professions and examines the physical, mental, and emotional toll that comes from making a living off of crime and death. Check out this great new show at bodytoburial.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. And I've just got to say before we wrap this up that I've listened to a few episodes. My favorite so far is the mortuary makeup episode where they brought in a special guest. I believe her name was India, and she talked all about her journey into becoming a mortuary makeup artist and what that looked like for her. And it's so fascinating, so interesting. I really think you guys are going to love hearing true crime stories from a fresh perspective. So go check out Body to Burial.
1: Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago.
0: Boom. There we have it.
1: There we have it. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. It's been a minute since we've recorded.
0: I feel like it has been. Even though we released episodes Mm -hmm. last week, it's been a minute.
1: Well, we did. So we, we had a Patreon episode, exclusive. And then we also uh, unlocked a Patreon episode for everybody.
0: Did last week was crazy. It
1: was so crazy.
0: May Day was in full effect.
1: It was. (laughs) So we let everybody enjoy the fruits of our labor when it came to Patreon for one episode. Yes. And I hope everybody enjoyed it because that one is seriously one of my favorites we've ever done. Just a wild story. Yes. Um, But otherwise, we're we're back at it. So it really, I mean, we like. (laughs) (laughs) We have done an episode last week, but it just isn't public to everybody. So it feels like it's really been a serious break almost from recording. So wild! I'm glad to be back.
0: Yeah. And fear not, dear wonderful listeners. Today we're doing a first installment of a two-part series. Mm -hmm. So... We'll be making up for lost time.
1: I can't wait. I'm excited to, all, to hear all about it. And yes. It's going to be a good time. Well, first, before we have too good of a time. Okay. We need to prime our good time. What are you drinking?
0: Wow, that was a really good catchphrase. I, I, I after much struggle, managed to open the Amaretto, and we're going with the Dr. Pepper Amaretto tonight. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Pepper Amaretto. I hurt my fingies trying to open the <laughs> bottle, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All 24 flavors.
0: Yes. What do you got? I, uh, I
1: reached back it's to the back of the fridge. It's 23 flavors. Wait
0: a minute. It's 23 flavors. Well,
1: 24 when you add amaretto. Okay, fine. There you go. <laughs> I reached to the back of the fridge and I dug out because it's really been feeling pretty summery in Nebraska the last yeah. couple of weeks. And I pulled out the old Simply Spiked Strawberry Lemonade.
0: Ah, tis the season.
1: I know. In fact, I haven't even opened it yet. so all right, let's hear the magic. Hear, hear the hear the hear crack open. here on mic. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. just like I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, you have a feel good fact for us this week?
0: I do. I kind of feel like this might be more of like an interesting fact or a fun fact rather than a feel good fact, but I feel okay. like it counts. Yeah. So, wild hermit crabs have been observed lining up in a single file line in size order, with the largest crab at the front of the line and the tiniest at the back of the line. From there, <laughs> the crabs will scoot out of their own shells and hop into their new homes. Which is the shell of <laughs> the crab size. in line in front of them. <laughs> it's like extremely chaotic, but yes. very, very hilarious to watch.
1: Well, and honestly, it sounds kind of cute. Like
0: It's like you know, a little sad because they're all
1: for each other.
0: There's also like like little renegade crabs that kind of like wait in the shadows oh. for the very weak, tiny ones to climb out. And they'll like steal the shell in front of them, oh. which like they can't last outside of their shell for very long. Yeah. So like it's kind of like a little bit brutal.
1: Wow. But okay. like
0: when everybody finds their their shell. It sounded that's nice. cute
1: until you learned about the Renegades. And yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're just into They're... like they won't play by anybody's rules, but they will get yeah. their shell upgrade. <laughs> oh <my>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look that oh up. Look that up. I found a we actually had a listener, Kyle, send us a video of it. And it's like I kind of felt a little bit guilty for laughing <laughs> because like the poor little crabs had to struggle and, like, everybody found one, but the little guy who got his shell swiped mm-hmm. by a renegade found a shell with a hole in it. Oh. And so, like, he still found a shell. Yeah. But like, yeah. he can't stay there for very long. Kind of a downgrade. Yeah. yeah. It was a downgrade. <laughs> <laughs> it was big uh. enough,
1: but it was, you know, kind of a fixer-upper, unfortunately. Yeah. We know.
0: Unfortunately.
1: We, <laughs> not everybody can, uh, can move up and move in all the time. So yeah. Sometimes you got to downgrade and make it nicer from there. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, my love, you've already kind of set us up. You've got part one of a story for us. Yes. Take us there. Tell us all all about it.
0: So this is like we've now over-established the first part of a two-part dive into a very mysterious place. The Bridgewater Triangle is located in southeastern Massachusetts and is said to be such an intense paranormal hotspot that researchers and believers in the paranormal refer to it as a paranormal vortex of activity. Mm. Sometimes a window. I've also seen the term window used. This spot has everything. Cryptid and UFO sightings, stories of gruesome murder and cult rituals, a history of brutal war, abandoned mental institutions, ghosts, and more. For decades and decades, the Bridgewater Triangle has captured the imaginations of people across the world. But what's the deal with this very strange place? Is it haunted? Is it cursed? Are all of the stories just made up? Or is there another explanation for the strangeness entirely? Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy.
1: Hmm. So right out of the gate, I need to ask this question. Okay. Is there a parallel, and maybe you'll come to this later, is there a parallel or a connection between this and the Bermuda Triangle?
0: So I didn't purposely write it down because I knew you would ask. (laughs) Not directly, but the person who coined the term Bridgewater Triangle saw the sort of like whimsy in the way that the public received news of the Bermuda Triangle. Mm, And I think a, a book or something like that about the Bermuda Triangle had come out around the time that he coined the term. And he thought, you know, what what a better there's not a better, more enticing way to explain this area based off of all the reports that I've spent all this time collecting mm-hmm. than to call it a triangle because it geographically is a triangle, weirdly enough. Oh, okay. But yeah. then also there's the added like mystique yes. of comparing it to a location like the Bermuda Triangle.
1: Right. Which is so
0: it's yes super and super no.
1: famous. Yes. Bermuda Triangle, everybody has heard of, at least mm-hmm. at some point in their life. Yeah. So okay, that makes sense. It's not tied together by any means, but it does have kind of a it. It borrows some it's kind of the like mystique. a nod. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah.
0: So the Bridgewater Triangle is a roughly 200 square mile area with the southeastern Massachusetts towns of Abington, Freetown, and Rehoboth forming a natural triangle. And within the triangle, some of the other towns are Bridgewater, Taunton. Rainham, Dighton, Brockton, Easton, and Berkeley. There's hmm. a bunch of other towns too, but those are kind of like the main ones that I saw listed out. Yeah. In the 1970s, a cryptozoologist by the name of Lauren Coleman noticed a massive influx of paranormal reports coming from the area, leading him to dedicate years of his life into exploring the area and investigating the reports for himself. What he noticed was that the reports were concentrated in that triangle-shaped area and that the reports were so constant and so consistent that it then earned itself the title Bridgewater Triangle. Hmm. So he was the one who coined the term. Mm-hmm. Okay. In paranormal research, an area can earn itself the esteemed title of triangle when a high volume of high strangeness is reported at a fixed location, and that was certainly the case in Bridgewater. Hmm. So, Lauren Coleman officially coined the term Bridgewater Triangle in his legendary 1983 book, Mysterious America, and the legend has only grown as the years have gone by. Wow. So, within the triangle, Lauren also mapped out three distinct parts, East Bridgewater, West Bridgewater, and Bridgewater proper, and it's within these confines that a shocking amount of paranormal activity is said to have taken place. But before we get to the paranormal stuff, we're going to get into the dark and deeply unsettling history of the area itself. The area is home to several iconic locations, such as the Hockamock Swamp, the Freetown Fall River State Forest, and Profile Rock. Known atrocities, crimes, cult activity, and the like are confirmed to have taken place here, and many argue that it's due to events such as these that the land has become such a hotspot for strange occurrences, while others argue that the land itself has caused the insane amount of high strangeness to take place. Hmm, okay. So, one side of the argument would say, all of the crazy bloodshed. Mm-hmm. And darkness that has happened here has essentially made this place cursed and therefore a magnet for high strangeness. Uh-huh. Whereas the opposite end would say it's the land itself that is causing the atro- the atrocities and the high strangeness yes. to magnet here. Yeah. So like the atrocities
1: would be considered, in that view, the atrocities would be considered uh, caused by the curse of the land. Like they're just an outcome of that. Yes. Okay. One is
0: saying that the atrocities caused it, uh-huh. while the others uh-huh. are saying it's the land itself that caused it. the atrocities. Does that okay. make sense?
1: Yes, it does. It's That's a little a, I was just crazy to, nuance. Yeah. Well, it's just it's 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 looking at something from the west versus looking at the exact same thing from the east, mm-hmm. and just trying to like figure out why do they think it looks like this, and they, but it, it's it's a lot of that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Like, well, I guess I can just let you be the judge. After Mm -hmm. we get through some of the historical stuff. Okay. Because if I went through all of the historical stuff that's been documented there, it would be like a 65-part series just talking (laughs) about that. Yeah. So there's a lot. So let's start by talking about King Philip's War. Okay. A full 100 years before the American Revolution, Southeastern Massachusetts was known as Plymouth Colony. Mm -hmm. In the years leading up to the summer of 1675, Native Americans who called the area home were subject to all kinds of mistreatment from New England settlers, with betrayal being the name of the game. Mm. A peace treaty between the colonists at the Plymouth Plantation and the Wampanoag Native Americans was established thanks to Chief Massasoit. The Wampanoags had heard all about the atrocities committed by Spanish settlers in Central and South America. And though the English claimed to be more civil towards Native people, Massasoit had also witnessed land battles between the English and the Spanish, making a mental note that the English had the skills and resources to kill large amounts of people in virtually no time at all. Mm -hmm. Massasoit knew that the only way to protect himself and his people from the English and from various other enemy tribes was to join them in some fashion. Hmm. So this would entail swearing loyalty to the crown in exchange for protection and eventually in exchange for valuable goods. But this treaty was pretty much completely one-sided. While the Wampanoags were... One of the native tribes that had offered to help settlers who were coming over from England, offering them priceless information and tips for surviving and thriving in the Massachusetts area, it wouldn't be long before the colonists got their feet on the ground and began going back on their agreements. Hmm. Limiting hunting and trapping and ever so slowly encroaching on Native American land, taking more of it as the years went on by using land as collateral for the goods that they were giving to the Native Americans.
1: Hmm.
0: And so with the natives being given more and more restrictions on hunting and trapping, they were becoming increasingly unable to pay back their debts. Mm-hmm. And so, boom, the English were then able to kind of, through a loophole, take over more and more of their land.
1: Yeah, interesting. So they, because they they didn't own the land, but they basically owned everything they needed to have their own the homes, like they just kind of right. over They time, wanted more of
0: it. Yeah. That's really what it came down to. And mm. they, they played on the vulnerability yeah. of the leaders. Yeah. Knowing that pretty much your options are to comply or there's going to be a war. Right. And mm. so really the using the land as collateral was a really sneaky. Yes. Sneaky and effective, unfortunately, tool to gaining more land. Yeah. Yeah. Because Technically, they gained it legally because they came to a legal agreement, but legally does not always uh, like not necessarily fair, (laughs) not necessarily fair or ethical. Yes, exactly. So Massasoit was obviously caught between a rock and a hard place. He could fight against the methodical and systematic trickery that was losing land for his people, but that would come at a great cost the cost would be the lives of many members of his tribe. So he kept trudging forward on the bad land deal for the sake of some level of peace. Mm. After his death in 1661, his first son, Wamsuda, succeeded him and was bound to the land deals and the debt that had continued to accrue. In the following years, Wamsuda would be renamed Alexander by the English as a way of demonstrating his loyalty to the crown. And then his brother, who I've seen referred to as both Metacom and Metacomet, would be renamed Philip. In 1662, rumors were swirling that the tension between Native Americans and the colonists was reaching a boiling point, which caused the colonists to become suspicious that the Wampanoags were plotting war against them. Mm. And so they brought Alexander before the court in Plymouth, where he once again declared his loyalty to the crown. During the time that he was being questioned in the courts, Alexander began feeling sick, and he asked to be returned home. But tragically, Alexander died on his journey back home, which led his wife and brother, as well as other members of the tribe, to believe that he'd been poisoned by the English
1: oh. while he
0: was there, causing tensions to soar once again. Yeah. So, I mean, it's is it possible that he got sick? Sure. Does it make sense that the natives are suspicious of the timing of the death? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. 100%. And we'll mm. never know. Right. Medicom or Philip then took over. And in the years that followed, many people kind of capitalized on the growing tensions. Mm-hmm. Enemy tribesmen, as well as defectors from the Wampanoag tribe, routinely went to the colony leaders claiming that Philip was plotting revolt and war. This led Mm. to more and more Wampanoags defecting from the tribe and taking on English names and English religions. And the numbers were swiftly dwindling in King Philip's camp, while others from allied tribes and even some enemy tribes actually decided to team up with Philip against the English. Mm. By July of 1675, King Philip's war was in full swing. Over the next year and a half, one of the most vicious wars on American soil unfolded, with historians describing it as the bloodiest war per capita in American history, with a death rate per capita that was higher than even the Civil War. Oh, wow. It was crazy. And it wasn't like a two-sided war on a battlefield, with enemies on either side fighting to the death until the whole thing was over, but instead it was almost like a prolonged, chaotic game of chess Or I've also seen it described as like a hit and run, Hmm. where one side would launch a sneak attack and then bolt, and then the other would follow suit. Wow. Whole villages, mostly comprised of women and children, would be attacked by the English, and the English would rarely leave survivors. Dogs would be sent into areas where the English believed that there were people hiding, and they'd rip apart anyone oh. who they caught, once again, mostly women and children.
1: Yeah,
0: And in turn, settlements were being torn apart by Native Americans one by one, with neither side really keen at all on taking prisoners. Any survivors on either side would be sold into slavery. Mm-hmm.
1: It
0: Jeez. was very, very brutal. I feel like I can't actually overstate how gruesome and, like, brutal— and dark this whole war was. Yeah. As the English continued their quest to find Philip with a goal of capturing him and executing him for treason, since he and his father and brother had all sworn allegiance to the crown, Philip and his small band of warriors decided to take refuge in wooded areas, mm-hmm. mainly swamps like the Hockamock Swamp, which will come up in the next episode mm. quite a bit. Okay. So they chose that location because they were very familiar with it and how to navigate it, but the English were not. Mm-hmm. And so this was a very smart move, yeah. like tactically yeah. on Philip's okay. part. He could, they could swoop through that place. They knew exactly where to hide. Mm-hmm. They knew how to navigate it and the English simply couldn't.
1: Yeah. Wow. So
0: one of the other primary sort of home bases for Philip and his crew was in the Mount Hope area in Rhode Island. And it was inhabited by Poconoket. I hope I said that right, the Poconoket natives, hmm. who largely served as allies to the Wampanoag during this time. Philip and his crew couldn't really settle anywhere for very long. And in January of 1676, they made the journey to New York to meet with members of the Mohawk tribe in hopes of forming an alliance. But unfortunately for Philip, the Mohawks had already formed an alliance with the English. So he and his warriors made their escape from Mohawks who attempted to attack them. So it was like kind of nowhere safe. Yeah, okay. By Hmm. the spring of 1676, the whole northeastern region of the country had joined in on the war on one side or the other. And while the intensity of the battle was dwindling a little bit, Philip still hadn't been found. He was very elusive. Oh, wow. Yes. But in the summer of that year, Philip's wife and child were found. They were abducted and then sold into slavery, which was absolutely devastating to Philip. Yeah. By the end of the summer, Philip was found by a Wampanoag defector who shot and killed him on the spot at a location within the Hockamock Swamp that's still known as King Philip's Seat, even to this day. After hmm. his death, Philip was hanged, drawn, and quartered with portions of his remains being given to various key players on the English side. Oh, geez. Yes. So we haven't talked about the practice of being drawn and quartered yet, and so I kind of feel like we probably should at least like briefly... Describe it, even though it's really terrible. Yes. So the process of being drawn and quartered was instituted in England sometime in the 1200s as a form of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, if someone was sentenced to being drawn and quartered, they'd be tied to a horse and dragged to the gallows, where they would be hanged and disemboweled, often while they were still alive. From there, their body would be taken down from the gallows and each limb would be tied and attached to a different horse who would then be sent running in opposite directions, ripping the body into four pieces. The person would also usually be beheaded at some point during this process. Mm. So after being drawn and quartered, Philip's head was placed on a stake where it remained for 25 years, just rotting away. And the rest of his remains were strung up And left to hang, like, up in trees in the area until they eventually just, like, wasted away. What? So, like, even after he was dead, it was brutal. Oh, my gosh. That's a long
1: time. The guy who
0: shot him got one of his hands. Like, very weird. Yes. Very weird. Because I know 1600s is, like, quite a while ago. But, like, I feel like we should be past drawing and quartering and giving like, body parts as mementos at that yes. point.
1: Yes. Like, well, maybe not, but... It sounds recent enough that, like, they would look back on, like, the Roman Colosseum and be like, oh, yeah, that's a little messed up. Right. But, like, they're doing just as terrible things. hmm And, ugh, wow. I and mean, it was
0: like an event. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah, that sounds
1: really strange. We... Death is a weird thing for a lot of people, and I get that. And I get that death is also, like like a an event for some people even today um
0: in some way not necessarily still, a spectator event but yeah sure but i do get what you mean
1: especially in capital punishment kind of situations though mm-hmm. like you yeah. people go and they watch you yeah. know and there's reason why they watch and usually it's for some kind of closure or something to that effect this is like just a a, a very it's a very odd degree of uh, it's 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 really concerning to me that people would be like, "Oh yeah, no big deal." For twenty five years to see some dude's head on a stick—that's right.
0: feels like very fantasy. Yeah, like it doesn't feel like that could be real, but like it straight up was. Yeah, for twenty five years. I have so more into thoughts, the seventeen hundreds. Yeah,
1: I have more thoughts about it, but I can't articulate them because they're like I. I I'm surprised. I'm just really Mm -hmm. surprised about it. Yeah. So, okay.
0: I read something that, like, somewhere around 5% of the entire Massachusetts population was killed during King Philip's War.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Like, it was an insane amount of people. And I wish I didn't write the percentages down, but it was nuts. Like, thousands and thousands of natives and Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of English settlers, and many of them not even. Like players in the game at all, mostly women and children, which is so heartbreaking. uh, So many cite these events as the reason why the land in the area of the Bridgewater Triangle is so haunted. Mm -hmm. That much blood, particularly the blood of the innocent, can't be shed without the consequences of haunting the land. But others believe that whatever's going on in the area, that it's caused by the land itself being bad or evil. Supporters of this idea cite the fact that long before King Philip's War, Wampanoags and any tribes that attended to make that particular chunk of land their home suffered from devastating disease, economic troubles, Mm. and other incidents that ravaged their population while leaving neighboring tribes, like tribes that didn't live directly on the land, virtually unscathed. Mm which is strange. That is very strange. But no matter which side you agree with, it's safe to say that regardless of the cause, this 200 square mile piece of land is the opposite of ordinary. Mm -hmm. One of the more famously rich areas for bizarre and disturbing occurrences lies within the Freetown State Forest, which is sometimes referred to as the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm. So as a little disclaimer slash reminder, I won't be totally delving into the paranormal Occurrences in this episode, but instead I'll be focusing mostly on historically verified accounts within the region, and then I'll save the paranormal stuff for part two. Mm, So there might be a few stories that I'll tell that has kind of like a paranormal residual effect, but overall I want to save that for part two. Okay. So let's talk about some of the true history within the Freetown State Forest area. Over the course of centuries, real-life verified events have taken place that, much like the bloody legacy of King Philip's War, are credited to the overall paranormal energy said to exist in and around the forest. Hmm. One of the more infamous crimes that occurred within the Bridgewater Triangle and just on the edge of Freetown State Forest was the murder of Mary Lou Arruda at the hands of a man by the name of James Cater. In 1968, Cater attacked and attempted to sexually assault a 13-year-old girl from North Andover. She was discovered tied oh. to a tree. And while Cater was quickly tried, convicted, and sentenced to 15 to 20 years in prison on charges of kidnapping, assault with attempt to rape, and assault with a dangerous weapon, and I believe attempted murder, he was released after six years What? and then put on probation. Oh, my. So two years into his probation in the fall of 1978, the body of a young girl was found tied to a tree in Freetown State Forest about 100 yards from a fork off of the main trail. Mm. When police arrived on scene, they noted that the body was fully clothed, that her wrists were bound behind her back, and that she was tied to the tree by her neck, almost identical to the way the body of the young girl from Andover had been found a decade Mm. earlier, Except for the fact that this body was deceased and in a state of decomposition, meaning that it had been there for a more considerable amount of time. Oh, man. It was initially determined that this second victim had died from exposure before she was discovered, but the autopsy came up as inconclusive, which greatly confused the investigation this time around. Mm -hmm. A forensic specialist was brought in, and it was then determined that she had died from positional asphyxiation leading investigators to believe that she was alive when she was tied to the tree and due to being bound she was unable to free herself or relieve the pressure from the rope around her neck causing her to asphyxiate yeah which is like such a miserable way to die yeah oh my gosh there was also evidence that prior to being tied to the tree that she was brutally beaten by her assailant Mm. Using dental records, the body was identified as 15-year-old Mary Lou Aruda, who was last seen walking her bike near her home on September 8, 1978, around 4 p.m. Mm. Her bike had been found abandoned on the road less than a half mile from her home before 5 p.m. on that same day. And very nearby the bike was a discarded cigarette and some very distinct tire tracks, indicating that she'd likely been abducted. Mm. Despite a massive search of the entire area and a $25,000 reward for information leading to her safe return, a composite sketch made with the help of witnesses who claimed to have seen the well-known teenager walking with an unknown man. And wouldn't you know it, the man in the composite sketch looked an awful lot like James Cater.
1: Oh, man.
0: (sighs) Yeah. So these eyewitnesses also reported seeing a green car with a black stripe driving like a madman near that place where she was last seen. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So despite all of that, no leads. So this is gut wrenching, but given the location of her abduction and then where her body was found later on, Cater would have had to have driven right past Mary Lou's home. So she was alive in his vehicle. Driving
1: past her home, driving
0: past her own house Mm. right before she died. Wow. They also believe that she died the same day that she was kidnapped. Just as an added side note. Hmm. So Mary Lou's body was found roughly nine weeks later in November of 1978, and it wouldn't be long until Cater would be seriously looked into. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that investigators noted was the similarities between Mary Lou's crime scene and the crime scene a decade earlier. They also noted how ridiculously similar the man in the composite sketch looked to Cater. Looking deeper, it was learned that not only did he smoke the same brand of cigarettes as the one found on the scene, but he also drove a green Buick Opal with a black stripe and distinctive patterns on the tires matching the ones near Mary Lou's bike. And
1: mm-hmm. that car.
0: Do you want to take a stab in the dark at who it was registered to?
1: I'm mean, gonna guess it was registered catered. to Cater. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. So there's a little confusion on my part when I'm looking at his subsequent trials. So he was found guilty of the murder of Mary Lou Aruda in 1978, and then again in 1986, but both of these convictions were overturned due to conflicting witness evidence. Oh, what? He was tried again in 1992, but was granted a mistrial. So his case was heard again in 1996, and this time he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, where he died in January of 2016 from cancer. Despite finally securing a guilty verdict and serving him a life sentence, the people of Raynham, which is the town she was from, Mm -hmm. and beyond, were infuriated to learn that Cater maintained his innocence in Mary Lou's murder and in the 1968 assault of the 13-year-old from Andover.
1: Mm.
0: Investigators were certain that they had the right guy from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. and they were equally infuriated that he was ever released After his first prison sentence. Right. Given the violence, like the violent nature, the fact that he targeted a child, like so many factors. And he served barely like a third of it. Yeah. That's insane. Not even half.
1: That's absolutely bonkers.
0: So not only is it confirmed that he attacked the 13 year old and brutally murdered Mary Lou, but he's also been tied to various other violent assaults in the area, such as the time he attacked a 63 year old widow who was visiting her husband's gravestone in a local cemetery. He Mm. bludgeoned her with the leg of a chair, but thankfully she survived.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: He also attempted to abduct another young woman after running her car off the road. Oh, my gosh. And so, needless to say, the people of Raynham were actually, like, celebrating when Cater finally kicked the bucket. Yeah. Mary Lou Arruda was known for being strikingly beautiful and full of life. She was a cheerleader in her hometown of Raynham, And from the very moment she went missing, just two days after her 15th birthday, which is so sad to me. And even to this very day, residents of Raynham remember Mary Lou and have memorialized her in many ways, such as naming a soccer field, a police plaque, a fingerprinting program, and even a street after her. Mm-hmm. Many residents have described the death of Mary Lou Aruda as forever fracturing the once simple beauty of their once cozy town. Her little sister, Karen Daly, who turned five years old on the day that Mary Lou's body was discovered in the forest, dedicated Mm. her life to protecting and serving her community. Serving as a special operations sergeant with the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Her family also remains beloved fixtures in the town. Mm. Sadly, this was far from the only crime to take place in and around the Freetown State Forest. So, mm, I'm trying to think of, like, which ones to share. Mm -hmm. So... I'm just going to briefly mention the new Bedford Highway killer, uh, who is believed to be responsible for the deaths of at least nine women in southeastern Massachusetts. Oh, wow. I'm not going to cover it today because I actually think I'm going to do a full episode on this one at some point. But the main points are that an unknown assailant targeted, murdered, and then dumped the bodies of women who had been abducted right off of the streets of New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is slightly southeast of the Freetown State Forest. Mm. He targeted mainly sex workers and addicts, stealing their chances at having a bright future and leaving at least 15 children without their mothers.
1: Oh!
0: For decades, people have speculated about about who could have committed these horrible crimes with many believing that there's some level of involvement from employees within the justice system while others believe that the rise of cult activity in the area could be connected. But we'll talk more about that case another time. Hmm. But on the topic of cults, Massachusetts was not immune to the satanic panic in the 1970s and 80s, but strangely enough, a bona fide true blue devil worshiping cult did in fact operate in the area of the Freetown State Forest in the late 70s and 80s. Oh, wow. Confirming the worst fears of locals in the area at that time. Mm-hmm. So. I feel like we've made the distinction before between Satanists and their belief systems and then actual devil-worshipping human-slash-animal-sacrificing beliefs. Sure. But I yeah. feel like it's worth making the distinction again. Mm-hmm. So most self-proclaimed Satanists or witches in the area around this time were not practicing what many people believe when they hear those words. Sure. So we've got the like neo-pagan practices such as Wicca, where practitioners believe it's their connection to the earth that gives them strength and wisdom. And then general Satanism, which is more focused on being true to yourself and doing no harm to others. Right. Members of those groups uh, are not who we are talking about Mm -hmm. in this part of the story, just as a little disclaimer. Okay. Okay. So the Fall River cult murders were gruesome beyond imagination. And so I'm going to offer a blanket content warning for this whole next chunk. Okay. I'll be mentioning torture, rape, murder. Oh, wow. Abuse. Oh, wow. I mean, just about any dark thing you could think of for the next solid bit of the story. So if you want to skip towards the end, I'm going to give you just a second to do that. On October 13th, 1979, a naked body was discovered underneath the bleachers at Diamond Regional Vocational High School in Fall River, Massachusetts. According to Detective Alan Sylvia, who was one of the first to arrive on scene, the body was bound with fishing line, lying face down, nude from the waist down. Um, she had been viciously beaten. Her head and face had been crushed by stones,
1: one Eesh. of which
0: was found nearby. And whoever had done this had also left a baseball bat shoved into her body. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Very, very terrible. The crime scene itself was indescribably brutal, and the body was quickly sent off for an autopsy, where it was revealed that she had been beaten in the face and head repeatedly with heavy stones like Hmm. the detectives originally believed. But all over her head, they also discovered several stab wounds from either a sharp knife or an ice pick. Oh my gosh, that is... And it was like horrible overkill, like horrible, horrible overkill. There was also evidence of extreme physical and sexual torture across her body as well. The body was identified as 17-year-old Doreen Levesque. Oh my gosh. A unhoused sex worker from New Bedford. Oh my gosh. She was identified after a reconstructive photo was made and circulated throughout the area, but the injuries to her face and head were so severe that, like, just looking at her, she was unidentifiable. Like, there was nothing that you could even really call a face left of her. Yeah. It was horrible. Oh. Once she was identified, it was also learned that due to a troubled relationship with her foster family at the time, that Doreen had resorted to life on the streets, which is where she got into drug use and sex work from an extremely young age. Mm. Given this information, police started looking into her murder by going through her list of clients, but one by one, they were each ruled out. Until they got to her pimp, a 24-year-old man by the name of Carl Drew a name that people in Fall River, including law enforcement, were pretty familiar with. Mm. He had a reputation for running the streets with violence and for running his ring of sex workers with a cruel and quick iron fist. Mm. But there was nothing concrete really tying him or anyone else to the crime.
1: Just the fact that he was her pimp kind of tied him to it. Oh, man. Okay.
0: Yes. So somebody kind of loosely connected would come forward to the police to give a statement. So it was a real shady dude named Andy Maltese. So he went to police and informed them that while he hadn't totally been able to verify information that he was being given by local sex workers, that he had heard through the grapevine that many of them did have relevant information to the case. Hmm. But that was like it. He basically came in and gave the most vague statement possible Wow. Okay. so the case went cold pretty quickly because nobody was really willing to talk
1: right and nobody
0: right. was offering anything useful and she wasn't even from fall river so like that made it tricky too yeah man but all eyes were back on andy maltese when another m- murder of a young sex worker was discovered this was the murder of 19 year old barbara riposa hmm. who was also a sex worker from the area and he happened to be the girlfriend of one andy maltese Hmm. So it turns out that shortly after the death of Doreen Levesque, Andy had reported Barbara missing, but it wasn't until three months afterwards that her body was discovered. Rumors had swirled after Doreen's murder about cult involvement given the gruesome overkill and violence, and those rumors only picked up steam after Barbara's body was discovered. So a man was walking his dog in the Freetown State Forest when he came across her body. It was, like Doreen's, nude from the waist down. She was also bound with fishing line and her skull had been crushed in. Oh. But this time she was found sprawled against a large stone that investigators described as being like an altar in appearance, mm. like a makeshift altar. Mm-hmm. So once again, the public was in a panic about a satanic cult living and operating in Fall River. Yeah. Normally, these things can be written off as satanic panic when we hear these kinds of stories. But in this case, the people were actually right. Oh, my gosh. But- I'll talk more about specifically about the cult here in a second. So when Barbara's body was discovered, it had virtually no decomposition evident at all. Hmm. But this would later be attributed to essentially being preserved by the cold Massachusetts winter.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting.
0: Barbara had been killed shortly after Doreen's murder and was left in the forest for three whole months before she was discovered. So there are some conflicting reports on exactly how the story unfolded from this point forward. So I'm going to do my best with the information I've been sifting through. Yeah. Because really it was like I would look at two or three different sources and they would each be saying something just slightly different. Okay. So I'm kind of compiling (laughs) to the best of my knowledge. And they're all good sources too. So I'm like, okay, guys, like (laughs) consolidate a little (laughs) bit. So one of the more popular versions of this next bit was that Andy Maltese had come into the police station before Barbara's body was discovered to inform them of cult involvement in Doreen's murder and his own involvement within that same cult. Hmm. At the time, he claimed to have been part of the Fall River cult. He claimed to have been a Satan worshiper and that everyone in the cult would kind of partake in various cult activities, such as... Specific rituals, blood rites, animal sacrifice, and eventually human sacrifice, all in the name of devil worship. Andy also outed Carl Drew as the leader and claimed that Barbara and Doreen were also both members of the cult. He claimed that he became a Christian afterwards, and despite his past involvement in activities such as rape, pedophilia, and sexual sadism, that he was a reformed man who just wanted to do the right thing. Hmm. So he's giving them a little bit more now. Sure. He's giving them some names. Yeah. He's giving them like, yeah, there's a cult. We do cult stuff. I'm not in the cult anymore. But Barbara, Doreen, a bunch of sex workers in Fall River are all part of it. And Carl Drew is the leader. Hmm. So that's essentially what he just gave them.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's, It's one of those things where it's hard to take that like at face value because it's so easy for that to just be um a vendetta against somebody right or and and like there's nobody super notable that he's pointing out like yes those are all like like humans who matter Mm -hmm. and people with like a degree of like interest from the police Mm -hmm. but it's not like oh yeah by the way the governor right is, is in this like right. it's it's just kind of a bunch of punks and
0: it's a it's a pimp and then young sex workers yeah. is what he's saying right and he's saying that Doreen was killed she was a member yeah and i'm worried that Barbara was killed too yeah as part of the cult's either right. sacrifice or whatever
1: which then to kind of cap the whole thing off unfortunately we know that sex workers are not cared for in the events that they're found murdered.
0: I know they're not prioritized as often as they should be. And
1: they especially weren't at this time in history.
0: It is interesting. So Fall River was a really interesting place at this time. There was like a massive, massive culture of sex work in the area. And it was like something like 30 or 40 women were working the streets each night in Fall River.
1: Hmm.
0: And like... I mean, some of this is, is hearsay, but I watched a little bit of a documentary mm-hmm. about specifically the cult, and they were saying that it was so uh, prevalent in the culture of mm-hmm. the town at the time that like, police officers would solicit a sex worker, and then once she was in the room, they would show the badge and be like, you're going to do whatever I say, otherwise I'm, I'm taking you to jail for soliciting and like oh, it wow. was like very intense and like there were documentaries made about it at the time like jeez. in the 70s and 80s oh jeez there were documentaries being made about the crazy crazy high influx of young women who were suffering from drug addiction mm-hmm. and how many of them kind of had to resort to sex work even if they were underage wow and like police some police were trying to do something about it without like punishing the girls mm-hmm. But they, their hands were kind of tied. Right. And so I do think that, like, not that there's ever a good place for this kind of thing to happen, but because it was such a part of the culture, mm-hmm. the officers that were the ones running hardest after this case actually really did seem to care a lot about the girls. Interesting. Which you don't okay. always see. No, you don't. You just don't. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. Everybody's case should be heard right. equally, of right. course. So this is kind of like a unique time, place, setting, Yeah, I think, for yeah. this specific type of crime mm-hmm. to take place. Wow. So after Barbara's body was discovered, Andy came forward and said that he had a psychic dream or like a vision where he was hovering over Barbara's body and witnessed her murder. He could explain the date, the time, the position of her body, and the method of the murder. He also claimed that her murder was ritualistic and sacrificial in nature. Oof. He also claimed that it was committed by none other than Carl Drew. Mm, so the police okay. didn't really buy like the mystical angle right. of this information. But based on this statement, it kind of essentially served to them as like a confession coming from Andy. Yeah. So they arrested him and continued to pursue the truth of what was actually happening in Fall River. Yeah, The Fall River cult as an organization was pretty straightforward. Carl Drew was the leader of the group. He referred to himself as the son of Satan and claimed to have a direct line of communication with Satan himself. Hmm. He also would speak in tongues that he also claimed were devil tongues. Mm -hmm. He claimed that Satan was pure evil and that that evil is the equivalent to power if a human could gain access to it. Wow. Very interesting character. Hmm. Sometimes I like my, my reflex is to roll my eyes a little bit and be like, okay, son of Satan, like cool, (laughs) you know, like most of the time I actually just don't think that they actually believe these things, right. These people that go and do these things, they've tasted some level of control and power, Mm -hmm. which we'll see kind of unfold here Mm -hmm. in a second. And they want that and they get addicted to the high of that.
1: Scaring somebody is like part of the control. It makes them feel like they're able to influence other people. By freaking totally. them out, by saying crazy things. Not totally. that they believe it, but because they know it'll give them a little bit of a, of a mystique.
0: Yeah, totally. So to cr- recruit members, Carl targeted vulnerable women, all of which were sex workers, and some of which also suffered from various addictions and past traumas. He would rope these women in by promising to protect them and to help secure their income as sex workers, but once they were in, they were stuck. hmm The girls would be forced to work all the time and would be forced to turn over a pretty high amount of their earnings. Otherwise, he wasn't afraid to use violence to get what he believed to be his. Jeez. The group would also engage in satanic rituals in the Freetown State Forest, as its haunted reputation served as the perfect backdrop for all kinds of dark festivities. Yeah. Doreen became the perfect victim because she was a transplant from out of town. She allegedly was approached by members of the Fall River cult and was told not to conduct any business in Fall River. And since she refused to join the crew, Mm -hmm. they're like, you can join us or you can leave, basically. This set her up as an outsider in the eyes of the cult and put a target on her back. And so her murder sent a message to anyone who wouldn't join the Fall River cult but still insisted on offering their services on the streets of Fall River. Mm. Like, you want to try this, and you're next. Wow. And then there was also allegations of it being ritualistic and sacrificial in nature. Yeah. So. Jeez. Once news hit the public that there was likely a cult connection in the recent murders of young sex workers, more and more sex workers came forward with their own stories of their own experiences with Carl Drew and his hench people. One woman claimed to have been in the cult for a short time and said that after she was arrested for prostitution at some point and then quickly released, that Carl Drew threatened to tie her to a tree and sacrifice a goat over her head, drenching her face and body with the blood in a twisted form of baptism and punishment all in one. Jeez. This guy was creepy and scary. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. The women in the group who weren't fully sold out for the cause were held in place by terror, afraid to step out of line and get themselves or their loved ones on Carl's bad side. So it's like a truly, wow. truly a trap, really. Yeah. As the investigation continued, Detective Sylvia eventually made contact with another cult member and sex worker, 20-year-old Karen Marsden.
1: Hmm.
0: Karen was terrified. Out of all of the members that had had conversations with police, Karen stood out as one who was particularly scared. Mm. The others who had offered help were all a little skittish, but their primary motive with cooperating with police at all or even offering to have a conversation with them was to cover their own tracks and to make sure that they didn't get blamed for the murders. Which also makes sense, especially if they were innocent. Sure, yeah. Initially, Karen wouldn't share much, but eventually she did reveal to Detective Sylvia that she was terrified for her life and for the life of her young son. She Mm. told Sylvia that she had witnessed the murder of Doreen Levesque and was forced to participate in it to some degree.
1: She confirmed
0: that the cult was a real thing and that it was led by Carl Drew, who served as kind of like a high priest and as a pimp to all the sex workers in the group. And then eventually, she led police to a shack in Freetown State Forest, where many rituals had taken place. On scene, they discovered makeshift altars, culty graffiti, animal carcasses that had been completely drained of blood, and more incriminating things like that. Wow. She also showed police a small body of water within the forest, where Carl claimed to have dumped bodies of his victims, and said that if she messed up, that that would be her fate as well. And Mm. Karen was convinced that she was, in fact, going to be Carl's next victim. Wow. She was convinced. Oh, my gosh. After learning all of this, Detective Sylvia urged Karen to go under protective custody until they could confirm all of this information and get the right people behind bars. Mm -hmm. But Karen refused. Oh, no. She told him that not only was she terrified of Carl, but she was almost more terrified of what would happen to her soul if she betrayed the group. Oh, no. She believed that her soul was going to belong to Satan if she betrayed Carl because that's what he told her. He said basically that he was going to sacrifice her to Satan and her soul would belong to Satan for eternity. Wow. But she wanted to fight back in some way and so she asked Detective Sylvia to drive her to a local rectory so she could talk with a priest because she believed that God could help her. Hmm. He agreed and watched as Karen walked up the stairs, knocked on the door, and waited. The rectory lights turned on and a priest welcomed her inside, and that was the last known time anyone saw Karen Marsden alive, a fact which haunts Detective Sylvia even to this day. Hmm. Karen Marsden was reported missing the following morning, but it would be months before investigators would learn the truth of what happened to her. Oh, no. So this is bad. Everything I've said so far is bad. Yeah. But this is really, really bad. So here's just another like content warning. This is going to be very bleak and gruesome. And I'm being very careful not to be over dramatic with how I explain it, but it is bad. Hmm. So maybe fast forward a minute or two if you don't want really terrible details. Okay. On February 8th, 1980, a car full of cult members drove Karen out under the guise of another ritual. But unbeknownst to Karen, she was the intended sacrifice. They dragged Karen out of the car by her hair, ripping out chunks of hair as they went. They proceeded to drag Karen for nearly two miles into the forest where they tortured her, ripping out what was left of her hair. They also ripped out her fingernails one by one and then cut off each of her fingers. Members of the cult then took turns stoning her and then Carl snapped her neck but this would not be what would kill her. Oh my gosh. What killed her was another cult member, Robin Murphy, being instructed by Carl to cut Karen's throat, and so she did. The group then took turns defiling her corpse under Carl's orders. And then he twisted Karen's head around and around until she was decapitated. And then he and other members of the group took turns kicking her head around like a soccer ball.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Deep breath. Horrifying. Oh. That's, that's me not being gratuitous. That it was is horrifying. Just
1: evil. Evil, evil, evil. Yeah. My ooh. Yeah, I told you it was bad. That's so bad. Well, we, we we talk about this every every so often. That like some of these stories are Especially ones that are just like, like allegations, Mm -hmm. are like you're talking about. This could be like one of the worst people to ever exist if Mm -hmm. they did all of these things, and it's you know usually like a point against that being true because Mm -hmm. nobody's that bad. This guy is that bad, and Mm -hmm. all these people involved, if they aren't doing it by compulsion, Mm -hmm. are just that bad. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, so the way that it was kind of phrased, so all of that was based off of testimony of a few of the people who claimed to have been there. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of consistency and overlap Mm -hmm. in those. But one element that they talked about, uh, not just in Karen's murder, but in other murders committed by the cult as well, was that to some degree, members were forced to throw a stone to participate in defilement of a corpse to participate oh. in, at some level so that they would be implicated right they couldn't now you can't go to police yeah because you threw a stone too you were part of the murder yeah while another angle that is kind of talked about is the like you're now bound to this faith Mm -hmm. also. So it's like several layers deep that the, like some of the people who participated were just straight up, disgustingly evil. And some of the people who participated were in danger of becoming next if they didn't participate. Right. Very terrible. Very, very, very terrible. So it wasn't until April 13th, 1980, that a portion of Karen's skull was recovered from the woods. The fragment of skull was missing all of its teeth And when police were called, items such as teeth, hair, fragments of a sweater, and jewelry were discovered across a two-mile path. Hmm. The items all belonged to Karen Marsden. Yeah. Since then, the rest of her remains have never been recovered. And members who were present at the death have claimed things ranging from setting her body on fire to complete the sacrifice, while others vaguely mentioned a nearby hog farm, but with no additional details. So nobody really knows what happened to the rest of her remains. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Over the next several months, the investigation continued and police got a major break when a cult member named Sunny Sparta came forward. She told them more relevant information about the case, most notably the fact that her apartment was sometimes used for cult meetings and that she'd received phone calls from a particular member of the group who called to boast about her involvement in at least two of the murders. Hmm. After sending in some undercover police to infiltrate one of these meetings, it was all confirmed. The cult was truly operating in Fall River. People had been murdered as sacrifices to Satan or otherwise. And these people, at least for the most part, truly believed that their sacrifices were granting them supernatural power and favor from Satan himself. Wow. But it wasn't Carl Drew operating alone. It was a joint operation between Carl and 17-year-old which I'll just say that again, 17-year-old Robin Murphy. Murphy was also a sex worker since she was very young, like a super young teenager, Mm -hmm. but she decided that she wanted in on the world of pimping as opposed to offering her own services. According to many people who have interacted with her, she was pure evil in the most unassuming form, and she rivaled Carl in her wickedness and determination. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Police took her in for questioning and she agreed to testify against Carl Drew and other members of the cult. And she agreed that she would plead guilty to taking part in the second degree murder of Karen Marsden under the condition that she could testify that she was forced to participate under threat of force from Carl and that she would get immunity in the other murders. So I'll confess to second degree murder of Karen Marsden under these terms. I didn't want to do it. I had to. And I'm immune from being prosecuted and the other two murders. And they said, okay. They made a deal with her. (sighs) Thanks to eyewitness testimony, including testimony from Robin Murphy, Andy Maltese was convicted of the murder of Barbara Raposa and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that is where he died. Hmm. A short time later. After a separate trial for the murder of Karen Marsden, Robin pled guilty to the second-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Hmm. She was successfully paroled in 2004, but landed back in prison on unrelated charges years later. Hmm. As for Carl Drew, he was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Karen Marsden and both sought appeals in their guilty verdicts over the years, claiming everything from coerced confessions to faulty representation. But from what I could find... All of their appeals were denied.
1: Hmm.
0: Carl and Robin each maintain their innocence to this day. Wow. And the documentary, it's just called Fall River. Yeah. I watched, I watched the first two episodes on Prime. It's a four-part documentary series. I think you can watch it on MGM Plus, but it explores the angle that Carl and Robin didn't do it. And hmm. it is very, from what I found, very interesting that like this story was painted.
1: About this case. Uh
0: I'm going to be honest. From what I've seen so far, I am not even kind of compelled (laughs) to believe that they didn't participate. Also, nobody was ever convicted for Doreen Levesque's murder. Okay. Wow. They couldn't prove anybody was directly connected to it. So she never got justice. That's sad. It is. But yeah, this is just such a bizarre cult gone out of control story. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I I remember... I forget if it was like like a fictional story like Criminal Minds or if it was like a documentary or what it was. Mm-hmm. But I've heard the claim that there have never been any confirmed cases of ritual human sacrifice in North America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe that's because this is like one of those things where they can't like absolutely independently verify that this is a religious practice. Versus just right. something that's a cult out of control kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But it's still very like, it's tied to this whole, uh, at, at, at best, mental uh, mental manipulation right. thing. Mm-hmm. This guy's just controlling people. And this is right. how he's doing it.
0: Well, yeah. And then other people were like, well, they obviously killed Doreen because she was from out of town. They killed Barbara because she was there mm-hmm. when Doreen was killed. And they didn't want to leave the weakest witnesses alive, right? So they could talk. And then they killed Karen for cooperating with police. Yeah. So really, you could argue that none of them were cult motivated. They just happened to grossly overkill and present in a very flamboyant way yeah. and go super gruesome Yeah. to make it appear as though it was cult related. Right. Who knows? So yeah, I'm going to finish that documentary. Oof. I'll let you know what I think of yeah. it. But yeah, that is the very shortened story of the murders committed by the Fall River cult. And we are going to wrap this episode up with one more place within the Bridgewater Triangle, and then we'll get to the crazy paranormal stuff in part two. Okay. So Taunton State Hospital is what we're going to talk about next. It was also known as the, I think the Taunton is Insane, Home for the Insane, something Mm, like that. Okay. okay. It's had a couple of different names, but I'm just going to call it the Taunton State Hospital. So it was a mental institution in Taunton, Massachusetts that was constructed and opened in 1854 where it stood for over 150 years. Wow. The hospital was designed in the Kirkbride design, founded by controversial yet iconic Thomas Kirkbride, who posited that long-term patients would do much better if their facilities replicated actual communities and granted patients access to fresh air. Hmm. And so that's how the hospital was constructed. And it was kind of like there was like a main base in the middle Mm -hmm. and then two wings, and oh. it would be kind of like the most extreme patients, maybe the most violent, maybe the ones with the longest wrap sheets would be on the furthest side of either wing. Mm-hmm. And then it would get a little less serious as you would get closer to the center. And then a lot of the administrative stuff, doctors, nurses, yeah, yeah, more basic clinic stuff was right in the middle. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Situated on 154 acres of farmland, the facility truly was a beautiful place in a beautiful setting, and one could only hope that the story could end with patients being helped without any questionable methods or practices. But this isn't that kind of story. No. Considering that it opened its doors in the 1850s and what we know about mental health practices of the time, it's safe to say that the perception and practices involved in treating those who were considered to be mentally ill were pretty much barbaric at best. Mm -hmm. At the time, there was immense shame when somebody had a family member with any abnormalities, Mm -hmm. a birth defect, a disability, or even in an eccentric personality. Yeah. Uh, Women suffering from conditions such as anxiety, depression, postpartum depression, Mm -hmm. or even fatigue could be seen as the perfect candidate as someone who should be committed. Wow. In the same vein, veterans suffering from PTSD or complex brain injuries, anyone with conditions such as Tourette's, epilepsy, substance addictions such as alcoholism, someone suffering from PMS or people who were considered to be disagreeable or disobedient were also candidates. Oh, wow. And once they were committed, it was highly unlikely that they'd ever get the chance to leave. And they were all dehumanized to the point of being regularly abused or experimented on.
1: Oh, jeez. It's crazy. Goodness. It's really sad because this is the kind of place that's supposed to help people. Mm -hmm. And instead, it becomes a prison of its own kind. And... Yeah, I, I feel like we've talked about a place like this before. Avalia. Island. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if we said this, but just just the whole existence of a hospital that does the opposite of its of its goal is just really upsetting. Right. It just takes away all of the hope for. Just serving and helping people who need it most. And I know that's not true everywhere. So there there should still be a hopefulness that especially today when these sorts of things are a little bit more regulated and paid attention to. But it took us a long time of doing it very poorly. And that's sad.
0: It is. Well, and I think it's always also wise to mention that, of course, not every nurse, not every doctor at this institution or at any other ones was conducting experiments on humans, was being abusive. That like the idea that this place was constructed with the very idea of fresh air being valuable Mm -hmm. and uh, patients feeling like they're within a community like, it doesn't need to feel like the Truman Show. It actually can just be like, isn't that nice that we're giving people a real human experience while they are undergoing right. treatment for something they're, they're suffering from? Yeah. You know, uh, but I mean, even just given the qualifications for being committed. Yeah. It starts out bad. Yeah. Like, it starts out questionable at best. So as the 1800s continued marching forward, new cutting edge experimentation was rampant on the hospital campus. Tactics such as submerging patients under warm water and then forcing them into the cold in hopes that the sensory shock would jolt them out of their perceived mental illness. Mm. Other things like solitary confinement being utilized on even the youngest of patients. And yes, I'm talking about babies.
1: Oh no. They would
0: put babies in solitary confinement.
1: Why would they even put babies in a, a mental hospital?
0: Well, people would turn over babies with birth defects. Oh my gosh! With obvious disability, with
1: uh-huh.
0: illnesses that they didn't know enough about to care for within the home. It was a, it was a shame. Yeah, a family shame, which wow. is just uh, it like yeah. actually makes my stomach turn to sick. think about that. Yeah. Makes me want to cry. Electric shock therapies, as well as inhumane restraint tactics, were utilized. And by the turn of the 1900s, frontal lobotomies were commonplace in many of the most difficult or most ill patients. Mm. On top of the more disturbing medical crimes, the hospital housed some extremely interesting folks. In 1892, the infamous Lizzie Borden was housed in one of the facilities on campus for a few days. Mm. The Lizzie Borden. Wow. And another lesser-known character named Jane Topan, otherwise known as Jolly Jane. So she confessed to the murders of over 31 people. Wow. People who were placed under her care when she worked as a nurse. Oh. Her life story is enough to give anybody goosebumps, but it's the infamous quote of hers that adds a special note of creepy to the Taunton State Hospital. She said this, quote, my desire is to kill more people, more desperate people, from every man and every woman who has lived to this day. Oh, quote. my. Wow. Yeah. So she was not great. No, not a cool person. Not wow. great. Many Ugh. people who believe the place to be haunted talk about its more shady inmates, along with the grisly history of mental health care. As decades passed, more legislation was put in place to protect mental patients from this kind of abuse, leading to the systematic closure and then restructuring of Taunton State Hospital and facilities like it. In 1975, the main part of the hospital was closed down with several of the other operations on campus still operating in some capacity for a Mm. while. In the 1990s, a $19 million improvement project was announced, but in 1999, the roof above the administration department collapsed, derailing the project completely. And the building sat in ruins until a fire broke out in 2005, leading to the demolition of the main part of the hospital, with the wings of the hospital being demolished in 2009. Hmm. And what was left of the structure was sold in the following years. But the stories have remained. People who worked in the building or lived nearby claimed to have experienced all kinds of disturbing phenomena. Hmm. It wasn't uncommon to hear the sounds of pained wails of patients all through the night while the place was in operation. Rumors of cult rituals in the abandoned building were backed up by strange and unsettling markings made on the walls. And staff claimed that when they would attempt to go downstairs to the basement of the hospital, that they would be stopped by an unseen force when they would reach the final step.
1: Mm. They would try
0: to move forward and they couldn't. One of the stranger things was that even after the hospital was abandoned, many people have claimed to have heard the sounds of disembodied voices with like screaming Mm. all over the grounds. People have heard these voices crying out for help, screaming, sobbing loudly, while others claim to see strange lights floating on the abandoned hospital grounds. There are tales of specific apparitions said to wander the grounds. Some appear as a dark mist, while others swear they've seen the apparition of an elderly man, kind of like looking down and admiring the grass. He's usually seen wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and many think that maybe he was a gardener Mm -hmm. or maybe on staff at the hospital rather than a patient. Whenever people have tried to approach him, he simply smiles and then fades away.
1: Gosh, I got goosebumps like three times in the last couple of minutes that you've been talking <laughs> I can't about wait this. wait
0: for part two. Oh, wow. Former patients, staff, and visitors have also reported seeing dark and menacing entities. Sometimes these entities are accompanied by the smell of smoke. Sometimes they appear as a dark mist or as smoke. And sometimes they're silent, while other times they'll utter out things like, leave. Hmm. Interestingly, one of the most common reports is that of apparitions that only appear at the corner of your eye, always just out of sight. (gasps) Reports of entities just like this have been reported all over the Bridgewater Triangle, which leads even the most skeptic person to wonder if there's any meat to the stories. Mm. I feel like I've decently established that the land that the Bridgewater Triangle sits on is home to centuries worth of atrocities, violence, and bloodshed, innocent or otherwise. To many, the origins of the dark, mysterious state of the Triangle stem all the way back to King Philip's War, while others believe they go back even further. But regardless, a place with such a dark and storied past is the prime setting for ghosts or ghouls, demons and their worshipers, monsters and monstrous people to flock to it.
1: Hmm.
0: Don't forget, this is only part one of our coverage of the Bridgewater Triangle. But for now, that is what I have for you.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, we're not going to break this one down yet because there's a whole second part. So Mm -hmm. we'll, uh, we'll hold off some of the breakdowns. I will just say this place is... Not a place I plan to visit anytime soon.
0: But it is very beautiful.
1: I do not care. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's absolutely crazy. And there's way too much craziness going on. But for now, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. If you haven't already, please make sure that you are subscribed to to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you've left a glowing five-star review. Those reviews help other people find podcasts like this one. Also, make sure that you follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. You can also email us this one is a doozy at gmail.com and for an even more direct connection with us, you can Join us over on Patreon, my love, watch tell them about Patreon.
0: Yes, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, not only can you support what we're doing with our show, but you'll also get access to ad-free and bonus content. Subscribers over on Patreon also get access to polls where they can mm-hmm. help us decide on episode topics, which this episode, the Bridgewater Triangle, was actually decided by our patrons. Nice. So thank you for that, guys. Yeah. You'll also get access to polls where you can vote between two organizations each month. So it's something that's really close to our hearts to not just tell these stories, but to support, actively mm-hmm. support victims of violent crime in their families, as well as certain marginalized peoples, like people that are falsely imprisoned uh-huh. and things like that. And so every month patrons can vote on that and then we give to whichever organization ends up getting the most votes so Mm -hmm. if you would like to take part in any of that stuff or in all of it we would love to have you over on patreon
1: yes well with that we will see you later this week for the rest of this doozy
0: thank you bye